we know it's reliable. We know that you watch over your word to perform it. We know that it's a foundation for our lives. We thank you, Father, for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I ask you to give me direction and utterance this morning to speak the things you would have me to say. But even more than that, I thank you for speaking to each and every one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. There are certain scriptures, at least for me, that are foundational. And uh, I believe that if every Christian would approach the Word of God in this way to identify those scriptures that become the foundation for everything else that we believe. I know it makes the Bible make more sense that way. But when we reject it, the, the basics, when we, when we reject those foundational scriptures and the truths that they reveal, it brings confusion. And a lot of the modern day church is in confusion. A lot of the church in this modern day don't know who's doing what in their lives. They are not able to distinguish the work of God from the work of the devil. They find themselves in difficulty and in tragedies. And they think, or at least they wonder, is God behind this? But God gave us his word to reveal himself to us, not to hide from us. And when we accept the truth of the word, it brings us into an understanding where we know what God does. We know, we're not guessing what the devil does. And we know God's means of escape for us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now here it tells us, that sin, and talking, he, the one man's sin he's talking about is Adam, well, really Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And he's saying that death gained entry into this life, into this earth, through the sin of Adam and Eve. Now, death, spiritual death, has many characteristics. One of those characteristics would certainly have to be sickness and disease. We know that there was no sickness and disease in the world God created until man fell. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind in any way. And in, uh, when God made an end of everything he made in the first six days, he looked at it and said that it was very good. It was a perfect creation. But then when Adam and Eve fell, yielded to the devil's influence, and fell. That opened the door to sin and sickness. And that spiritual death, that influence of sin and sickness, passed unto all men. Now Jesus came to the earth, and it identified certain specific things that made up his ministry. Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 says it this way. It says, And Jesus went about their cities and villages, 
teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. This is what the Holy Ghost summed up Jesus' ministry to be. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, folks, if the Bible says and tells us directly, as it does in this verse we just read, if it tells us that man is subject to death, and the death that it's speaking of is spiritual death, separation from God, if man is subject to death and the characteristics of death, which include sin and sickness, then the answer or the remedy for the characteristics of death, specifically sickness and disease, has to be the answer for sin too. If sin was the entrance to sickness, then the only remedy for sickness has to be the same remedy for sin. Now we understand that everybody in the modern day church that names the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior would recognize and proclaim boldly that the answer for sin is the redemptive work of Jesus. Or let's say it this way, the substitutionary work of Jesus. In other words, the way to escape the influence of sin and spiritual death in this world, there's only one way, and that's to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. To accept the shedding of his blood and the sacrifice that he made on the cross as the answer, the only answer, the true answer for spiritual death. Well, then, folks, if sickness came in the same door as death, then the only answer for sickness and disease would be the shed blood of Jesus also. Now, nobody argues, nobody anywhere argues God's ability to heal. Everybody believes that God can do whatever he wants to do. Most of the church thinks that God is making it up as he goes. And a lot of the church must think, they would never put it in these terms, but must think that God's a schizophrenic. Because sometimes he's making people sick and sometimes he's healing them. But the real debate, the real controversy about healing is, is it God's will to heal everybody? Now let's put it in these terms. The debate or the controversy is whether or not healing is in the atoning work of Jesus. See, if healing is part of the atonement, the sacrifice, the substitutionary work that Jesus made, if healing is a part of that, then it's for everybody. It's available by faith to receive just like forgiveness of sins. But that's the real argument that's held in church circles. Is healing a part of the atonement? So I want to address the, this issue this morning real quickly. Hopefully not too quickly. But I want to address this issue is healing part of the atoning work of Jesus? Now, here's my first question. There's a lot of ways we can approach this. And here's the first question that I have. If healing is not part of the atonement, then why are there so many Old Testament types of the atonement connected with and associated with sickness and disease or the healing of sickness and disease? If it's not a part of the atoning work of Jesus. If healing is not a part of the atoning work of Jesus, 
Why are there so many Old Testament examples of just that? Now, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. So let's pick three. Let's pick three examples of the Old Testament where healing is associated with atoning or the atonement. We know that the Old Testament examples and events are types and shadows of the things that Jesus fulfilled. So if we can find Old Testament types that Jesus fulfilled, then we would have to conclude that healing is a part of the atonement and it belongs to everybody just like the forgiveness of sins does. So let's pick the first three. The first one we want to look at is the Passover. We find in Exodus chapter 12 that after the nine plagues have come upon the Egyptians, the last one was the death of the firstborn. Now the death of the firstborn came with a warning and came with instructions for Moses concerning the children of Israel. You remember how it went. God instituted this thing called the Passover where a lamb, was shed, a lamb was killed, his blood was shed. And the blood was applied to the doorposts of each and every house. And that blood, it said when the angel of death saw the blood, he passed over that house. So the blood was certainly important, critical in the Passover ritual. But there was also more instruction given that a lot of times people don't pay attention to. And that is the lamb that was slain for every household was to be roasted and eaten. And the Bible says God told Moses to tell the people to eat the, the roasted lamb, eat all of it, don't leave any, uh, any leftover. If any was left over, it was to be burned and destroyed in the fire. The Bible says that God told Moses for them to eat the flesh of the lamb, the roasted flesh of the lamb, for the strength for their journey. Now, in the Old Testament institution of the Passover, the flesh of the lamb, the meat, was to provide for them a benefit. Well, if the blood has an application for us, as Jesus fulfilled the type, then the eating of the lamb has too. It has to be a, a benefit or it has to be, be significant for a blessing that belongs to us as well. We see that after the, day, the Passover, the death of the firstborn took place, Pharaoh let Israel go. And you remember the story how that as they were going, Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his armies after them. But God delivered them through the Red Sea. The waters parted and they went over on dry ground. When Pharaoh's armies chased after, him, after them, then the waters came together and drowned the army. Now, it wasn't three days after the Passover that they come to a place after they'd been delivered through the Red Sea. Moses leads them to a place where they don't have any water, or really the waters are, are King James says, bitter. It's not uh, clear from the language whether or not it was just undrinkable or if it was poisonous. Could have been either or both. But they came to the place where there was no water, and the people began to complain. And God told Moses to find a certain tree. He showed him a tree that when he, cast that, uh, when he cut the tree down and cast the tree into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And it was at that time that God identified himself to Israel. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, as the Lord that healeth thee. Now the word healeth 
that's used there in Exodus 15, 26, it's a continuous action verb. It means past tense, present tense, and future tense. It means consistent. It means constant. Well, what was the past? We know what the present was. The present was he made the waters drinkable. We know the future was the promise that he's making to bring healing and to restore health to Israel. But what about the past? Well, the Bible says that through the Passover, there was, God brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. So when God says in Exodus 15, 26, I'm the God that healeth thee, he may very well be saying, I'm the one that brought healing to you. I'm the one that healed you so that you could come out of Egypt. The estimates of the number of Israelites that came out of Egypt are anywhere from 2 to 7 million. And no matter what number you want to pick, pick the lowest estimate there is at 2 million. It would be impossible for 2 million people to make up the whole of Israel without there being any sick among them. But the indication or the implication is that through the Passover, they were healed. Now, in order to, to identify this as a possibility, we can look at 2 Chronicles chapter 30, when Hezekiah is king, 765 years later from when the Passover was instituted. Israel has forgotten God. They've rebelled against him and forgotten him. And Hezekiah becomes king, and he reinstitutes the Passover. And the Bible says, even though they were doing some things in the wrong way, not at the, the right time of the year, and they hadn't gone through all the purification process that the Bible requires, that the, the Passover required originally. The Bible says that when Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 20, it says, And the Lord hearkened unto Hezekiah and healed the people. So we see 765 years after the Passover was instituted that healing is a part of the Passover work. We see also... The fulfillment of this, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, that Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. So the Old Testament type of the Passover is certainly fulfilled in Jesus. And do you remember what he told the, to the Corinthian church? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about the, the ritual of recognizing and keeping the Lord's death until he comes. Because the, the Corinthians were participating in an unworthy manner or with the wrong attitude. Paul said for this cause, the way they were doing it, what they were failing to recognize about the Lord's Supper. He said, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Now, what was it that they were doing wrong that brought sickness or opened the door to sickness in the church? Paul said they were not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, they failed to recognize that Jesus' sacrifice concerning the Passover was not just the shedding of blood, but also the breaking or the brokenness of his body, the stripes that he took upon his back. And failing to discern the Lord's body, rightly discern the Lord's body, they opened the door to sickness. Now you've got one Old Testament example in Hezekiah's day where they partook, even though they didn't follow it to the letter of the law, they had the right attitude toward the Passover and healing was obtained for the whole of Israel. 
and compare that to the Corinthian church who are participating in the same ritual but with the, with the wrong attitude, a wrong attitude of Jesus' body, the purpose of his body being broken for us. And they've opened the door of sickness and disease. So we would have to conclude that healing was a part of the Passover ritual, the Passover work in the church age, as well as in the Old Testament. Here's the first type that Jesus fulfilled. And it identifies that healing was a part of the atoning work of the Son of God. Now, the second one is the cleansing of the lepers. I want you to look at this one with me. Turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 14. Leviticus chapter 14. I have just this last week gone back to the Bible. That doesn't mean I've departed, ever departed from the truth. But there was something uh, about using the iPad. I started that several years ago, and I never have been satisfied with it. I missed my Bible. I knew where things were on the page. I may not have known chapter and verse, but I knew where to find it on the page. And I've missed that. I'm going back to that. I have gone back to that. I want to read some of this in Leviticus 14. I'm going to read several scriptures. So bear with me if you can and follow along. Beginning in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest. And the priest shall go forth out of the camp. And the priest shall look and behold if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper. Then shall the priest command to take him, take for him that is alive, I'm sorry, that is to be cleansed, two birds alive and clean, cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it in the cedar wood and the scarlet and hyssop and shall dip them and the living bird into the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from his leprosy seven times and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. And he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all of his hair and wash himself in water that he may be clean. And after that he shall come into the camp and shall tarry abroad out of his tent seven days. But it shall be on the seventh day that he shall shave all of his hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows even all his hair shall he shave off. And he shall wash his clothes. Also he shall wash his flesh in water and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two he lambs without blemish. And one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish. And three tenths deals of fine flour for a meat offering and mingled with oil and one log of oil. And the priest that maketh him clean shall present the man that is to be made clean. And those things before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle in the congregation. And the priest shall take one he lamb and offer him for a trespass offering and the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall slay the lamb in the place where he shall kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest, 
so is the trespass offering. It is most holy. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering. And the priest shall put it upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed. And upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the priest shall take of some of the lava of oil and pour it into the palm of his left hand. And the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand. And shall sprinkle of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And the rest of the oil that is in his hand shall the priest put upon the tip of his right ear. Of him that is to be cleansed and upon the thumb of his right hand. And upon the great toe of his right foot upon the blood of the trespass offering. And the remnant of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall pour upon the head of him that is to be cleansed. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. And the priest shall offer the sin offering and make an atonement for him that is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Afterward he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the meat offering upon the altar. And the priest shall make an atonement for him that shall be clean. And if he be poor and cannot get so much, then he shall take one lamb for a trespass offering to be waived to make an atonement for him, and one-tenth the fine flour mixed with oil for a meat offering and a log of oil. Now, folks, we could keep reading. I hope I haven't put you to sleep already. But the one thing that I wanted, to see, wanted you to see, and the reason that I went through that, is to find all the tedious details to identify how detailed God was about what this thing was supposed to represent. Now we know that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. We know that the things that happened on the day of atonement were satisfied by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We know that all the things of the Old Testament rituals, all the sacrifices, whether they were sin offerings or meat offerings or or, uh, trespass offerings, and each one had a different meaning, each one of them had a little different operation to it, all those things were fulfilled by Jesus. Every one of those. And we could keep reading down through verse 32 where it talks about these are the ways that the leper is to be cleansed. So if all these things are part of what we saw three times, I believe, three or four times in verses that we read, that the priest shall make an atonement for the man that is to be cleansed. The priest shall make an atonement for the man that shall be cleansed. How is it That leprosy, which is the great, terrible plague of the day. Many people consider that to be the plague of Egypt that God talks about through Moses in Deuteronomy 28. But leprosy is kind of the the ultimate, the worst of the worst of the diseases. It's certainly the ultimate of a flesh-eating disease. Leprosy, if left unchecked, would certainly take the life of the leper but over and over and over again it talks about the one that is to be cleansed shall have the priest make an atonement for him and Jesus fulfilled that atonement I want to show you something else I won't go through as much detail but notice in chapter 15 here's another of the great diseases of the day and that is an issue of blood Beginning in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When any man has a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. And this shall be his uncleanness in his issue, whether his flesh run with the issue, or the issue be stopped from the, or his flesh be stopped from the issue. It is his uncleanness. 
Skip down with me to verse 15. It goes through a lot of details like we saw before about lepers. And the priest shall offer them one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord for his issue. Verse 19, it tells us what happens with women with issues. If a woman have an issue and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days and whosoever touches her shall be clean until the evening. I'll skip across to verse 30. After many details are identified, and the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for her before the Lord for the issue of her uncleanness. Leprosy was kind of the representative of all sickness and disease because it was considered to be the worst of the worst. And here it tells us also about what takes place or what took place under the Old Testament when someone with an issue of blood was healed. And in both cases, it talks about how the priest made an atonement. Now, folks, these two examples, an issue of blood and leprosy, were both covered in Jesus' ministry when he was here on the earth. You remember the leper that came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. He said, good master, I believe that you can heal me if you will. He didn't question God's ability. He was an example of the modern-day church to a great degree. He believed that God could, or he believed that Jesus had the power to heal sickness and disease. He just didn't know if God wanted him healed or well. And so it says, Jesus was immediately moved with compassion and reached forth and touched him and said, I will be thou clean. And his leprosy disappeared. And we remember the story in, uh, uh, well, not uh, just the leper in Matthew chapter 8, but you remember the ten lepers that came to Jesus and hollered at him from afar off. And they said, O thou son of David, have mercy on us. When they called him the son of David, they recognized him as Messiah. So they cry out to him, and Jesus hollers back and says, Go show yourself to the priests. And it says, As they went, they were cleansed. Their leprosy disappeared. You remember one of them came back and fell down at Jesus' feet and worshiped. And Jesus just asked the question. He said, Where are the other nine? Only one has come back to thank me for what I've done. He asked, was the other nine not cleansed too? They were all cleansed. One just had the, the good sense to come back and thank the one that provided it for him. But when they went back to the priests, they went through all this ritual in chapter 14. They went through all of these things because of the healing power of God that was administered by Jesus. Now, folks, remember, Jesus was sent to the earth to be an example for us. He was sent to the earth to show us the Father. Jesus said at the end of his ministry, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So that means anything and everything Jesus did, and Jesus even claimed himself. He said, I always do the will of my Father. Now, folks, if Jesus ever stepped out of the will of God for just one moment, then that would make the whole thing a lie. So every time we see Jesus stretching forth his hand to heal or ministering healing in some form, any form, every form, we have to understand, we have to conclude that that was the will of God. And Jesus never told anybody during his earthly ministry. He never found anybody that so many claim to be like today. Jesus never found anyone that said, no, brother, I'm sorry. It's God's will for you to be sick. You just need to glorify God in your sickness. Now, if the modern-day church is correct as that being the reason why so many people are sick, 
that God has brought this on them to teach them something or so that they can glorify God in their sickness. Why didn't Jesus find any? Why was it so hard for him? Jesus was operating on the opinion and from the position that all sickness was of the devil. He never had to pray if it was God's will for anybody to be healed because he knew that all sickness was of the devil. And he communicated this pretty specifically to his disciples. In Acts chapter 10, 10 years after the day of Pentecost, 10 years after the Holy Ghost is poured out and the church begins its formal work with the aid and the, uh, and the strength of God himself. Peter is teaching in Cornelius' household. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost in power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Peter understood, the early church understood, that sickness and disease were always of the devil and Jesus always went about doing good by healing people. That means there could not have been one person that Jesus healed that was made sick by God or else the Bible's a lie. Peter understood specifically and therefore the early church had to understand as well that everybody Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. Therefore, sickness has to be satanic oppression. So the first example we've got of the Old Testament type is the Passover that Jesus fulfilled, and it contained healing for the people. The second example we've got is the healing of the leper as well as those with issues of blood that Jesus fulfilled, which brought healing to the sick. Now, the third one is one that we don't pay much attention to, to be honest with you. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. I want to start with verse 9. No, verse 8. Verse 8, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years. And the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee as forty and nine years. Now this is talking about the year of Jubilee. Every fifty years, Israel had this thing called the year of Jubilee. And remember, this is a type. This is a, an example of something that Jesus fulfilled too. And the year of Jubilee was where every man was restored to his original possession. Let's keep reading. He's talking about the year of Jubilee now. So verse 9, he says, Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubil to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of, atone of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all the, your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubil unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. So this is something that no matter what happened over the last 50 years, if you sold a piece of property because you got, uh, came into hardship or whatever, that property after 50 years would revert back to you. Now, folks, you have to understand that that would change the business sense of the Jews in a tremendous, tremendous way. 
because they knew that no matter what contract they were entering into, it was only good for at most 50 years. And they kept up with when the year of Jubilee was coming. For example, you wouldn't want to make a deal to buy a piece of land on the 49th year. And again, it goes into great detail. Chapter 25 goes into great detail about how these business transactions were to be obtained or, or, or managed. What you were required to do to return the land back to, to the possession of the owner. I want you to see this, how many times it says it in, verse, in uh, chapter 25. We just saw it in verse 10. And you shall return every man unto his possession. Verse 13, in the year of Jubal, you shall return every man unto his possession. Verse 27, let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it that he may return unto his possession. Verse 28, but if it be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall, be, shall remain in the hand of him that has bought it until the year of Jubal. And in the Jubal it shall go out and he shall return unto his possession. Verse 41, then shall he depart from thee, both he and his children with him, and shall return unto his own family, and unto the possession of his father shall he return. He says it over and over and over again. The thing that we're supposed to understand about the year of Jubilee is it's a, it's a type. It signifies the return unto the original possession. Well, how does that apply to us? It's a type of God returning to uh, turning us to our original possession. What was our original possession? He's talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Now, remember in, Acts, in uh, Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> when Jesus came to the earth, he was not here over the year of Jubilee. But he still had something to say about it. You remember in Luke chapter 4 where he goes to his own hometown of Nazareth. Beginning in verse 18. Or verse 17. Uh, verse 16. We'll get in context. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had found... When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This is what we know of as Isaiah 61. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Notice verse 19. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And the reason for that was they had heard about his healing ministry in Capernaum, which wasn't too far away from Nazareth. So everybody's looking at him intently. He's, uh, he's read scriptures that pertain to the Messiah. Everybody knows these are messianic scriptures. Everybody knows that these are scriptures that are talking about the Messiah and the work that he will do. Now, what he doesn't do. He doesn't quote the entirety of Isaiah's prophecy. Because Isaiah's prophecy covers from the time of the beginning all the way to the time of the end. Where the sun, and the sun will turn black 
and darkness will cover the earth. Things that will happen during the millennium. Jesus leaves that out. Because when he says next, identifies the time period that they are occurring. He says, this day are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. Well, that wouldn't apply to the millennium. It wouldn't apply to the tribulation. So when he says these scriptures are fulfilled in your ears, he's saying this begins the year of Jubilee. Now the type that's being fulfilled is that when Jesus began his ministry, that ministry would return every man to his original possession. We quoted Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 a little bit ago. Let me quote it again. The summary of Jesus' ministry. He went about their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Peter understood. We quoted Acts 10.38 a little bit ago. Peter understood the importance of healing in the ministry of Jesus. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power. Who went about doing good and healing. All that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. So Peter understood why healing was such a prominent part of Jesus' ministry. Some have tried to downplay and said, well, healing wasn't the real main line of Jesus' ministry. It was just a sideline. Not according to my Bible. Jesus healed every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus healed everybody that came to him. And that was to show us God's plan. That was to show us God's nature. That was to show us what God is really like. Nobody came to Jesus for healing and failed to receive. Nobody. Can't find one example of all the multitudes, of all the events that are recorded in the Bible, John said that so many things were not included and recorded. He said if everything Jesus said and did were written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, then that would have to mean people were healed in Jesus' ministry that we don't have record of. It would have to mean that, wouldn't it? So when Jesus pronounces the year of Jubilee, he's talking about what belongs to us The year of Jubilee was fulfilled by the work of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of the work of Jesus to restore every man to his original possession, to righteousness, to financial provision, and to healing for the body. Now look at the the, um, uh, order of the things that we see in Leviticus chapter 25. The order was very simply this. The day of Jubilee started... On the 50th day of atonement. First was the atoning work of the sacrifice. You remember the day of atonement. How that went. There were two animals. That were chosen. Examined. To be without spot and blemish. And much in the same way as we read in in, uh, Leviticus chapter 14. About the leper when he was cleansed. It talks about two turtle doves. One is killed. And the blood. uh, One is killed over the running water. The other is dipped in the blood of the first. In the day of atonement, there was a scapegoat and a sacrificial lamb. And between the two, they were both without spot and blemish. The priest would cast lots to see which one was which. And so it tells us and focuses on the the work of the sacrifice. 
It tells us in detail how the sacrifice was to be offered. It tells us in detail about how the blood was supposed to be applied to the, the, the mercy seat, to create the mercy seat. It was really the judgment seat that was on the lid of the, the Ark of the Covenant. But when the, the blood was applied, it became the mercy seat. In other words, there was a substitutionary work, even in the Old Testament type, that when that blood was applied to the lid, the place on, between the two angels on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, then that would atone for the, the sins of Israel for one year. But the other goat had his hands, had the priest, high priest would put his hands on the, the head of the goat and pronounce all the sins of Israel upon it. And then it would be taken out into the wilderness to a land cut off from the living is the, is the terminology that the Bible uses, signifying Jesus being made death and going into the pit of hell to, to finish the work of God to do the work of the sacrifice. And judgment would fall on the, the scapegoat out in the middle of the wilderness. So the year of Jubilee is the 50th day of atonement. Every 50th day of atonement became the year of the Jubilee. So the order was the day of atonement sacrifice was to be made. Righteous, the symbol of righteousness being restored to the people. The second thing is the trumpet would sound to announce the year of Jubilee, the fulfillment of the trumpet is the preaching of the gospel. And then the third thing that would take place was the blessings of every man being restored to his possessions that would begin. Now, folks, Jesus fulfilled those, all those atoning sacrifices. He, he fulfilled all those types. He fulfilled all those shadows. We're not in the shadow anymore. The church age is the year, is the, the year, the period, the time of the Jubilee. And the restoration of the, the original possession, according to what the Bible says Jesus emphasized, had to include healing. You remember when Jesus was in, uh, in Luke chapter 5, it tells us Jesus was in a certain place. And there was a man, a crippled man that had four uh, friends that brought him to Jesus and they couldn't find any way to get in so they took off the roof dug a hole in the roof and let him down in the midst of everybody else and it says when Jesus saw their faith he said man your sins are forgiven you now folks I, I would just guess that his friends are bringing the crippled guy certainly with his approval who's going to let somebody let him, let him down through the roof if they don't approve of what's going on but I'm guessing that the crippled man came for healing, not for forgiveness of sins. Yet Jesus said in the presence of the doctors of the law and the scribes that were there, even after the Bible tells us that the power of the Lord was present to heal them, healing power was there. But the four guys and the man on the, the crippled guy on the, on the mat, the bed, were the only ones that exercised any faith. So Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, that created a real stir with the, the Jewish leaders. And Jesus asked him about it. He said, why reason you in your hearts? They said there's only one person that can forgive sins, and that's God only. So they were greatly offended when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. What they didn't realize is they were right, and they were standing in the presence of the Son of God. So Jesus asked him a question. He says, which is easier? Is it easier to say, man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus is saying, it's the same thing. 
because the same way that that brings forgiveness from sins, which was the Messiah's blood being shed, is the same blood that is necessary and required for sickness and disease to be paid for too. So Jesus said, okay, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately he rose up and walked. Notice what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us that the same blood that was shed for sin was the blood that paid the price for sickness and disease. So here's our three examples. We've got the Passover that Jesus fulfilled, which was the atoning work of Jesus. We've got the cleansing of the leper and the cleansing of the issue of blood. Those were the issue of blood as being fulfilled in the atonement or by an atonement. And then thirdly, we've got the year of Jubilee that began only after the day of atonement was satisfied or the rituals carried out. And then the trumpet sound, which for us is the gospel of Jesus himself. And then the year of Jubilee begins. Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 14. It says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. The word save is the word sozo, which is translated heal or make whole in other places in the New Testament. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice the connection between healing and sins. He said, and if he's committed sins. Doesn't say that everybody's sick has. But he's saying if they've committed sins, then those sins will be forgiven him. See, folks, here's the, here's the, the, the real point that we need to see. Even if there's sin in somebody's life, there's provision made by the gospel of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, so that those sins wouldn't have to keep them out of the blessing of healing. So many times the devil will beat people up that are fighting against sickness and disease. And the devil will tell them, your sins have brought this on you. It's because of your sinfulness or your unworthiness or whatever other term he wants to use. But this scripture tells us specifically, even if that's the case, which usually if the devil's telling you it is, it's not. But even if it is the case, there's provision made for the forgiveness of sins so that healing can be obtained. Now notice verse 16. It says, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Notice that phrase, confess your faults one to another. This word faults is used 23 times in the New Testament. It's translated offenses. It's translated trespasses. It's translated sin. And it's translated fault. It's the same word that's used in, in uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 where it says, not as the offense, so is the free gift. That if any man should receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, he shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So here where it says, confess your faults one to another, it's simply saying walk in love. You remember what Jesus told 
his disciples. He said, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that you have someone, something against someone, leave your gift there and go make it right with them and then come back and offer your sacrifice. It's the same thing as saying walk in love. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Somewhere it says confess your faults one to another. He's saying don't let anything break the love walk. He's saying don't let anything get in. Don't let in unforgiveness or hard-heartedness or any other such thing. Don't let that get in the way. You remember also in Mark, Mark chapter 11, verse 24, talks about the prayer of faith. The same prayer of faith that, see, that heals the sick. What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Verse 25 goes on to say, and if you stand praying, forgive if you have all against any. Jesus told us that unforgiveness would hinder faith. That's what James is saying here too. He's saying don't step outside of love. And pray one for another that you may be healed. He's saying that this unforgiveness or this living outside of the love walk of God, he's saying that will hinder your prayers. But he says it's the only thing that will hinder your prayers. So if you make it right and get back under the, in the love of God, then it's available to you. Now notice verses 14, 15, and 16, they all say the word pray. Those are three different words. In verse 14, it says, Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This word pray is a general word. It's a generic word. It just simply means to worship. It doesn't mean to ask. Verse 15, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. This is a different word, and it means a vow or declaration. Verse 16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. This word pray is the word wish. In other words, it means to express your desire. Now notice it's not the elders that healed the sick. Notice it's not the oil that heals the sick. James 5.15 says the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. Again, this is the word vow. It means a declaration of, what's, of something that's already been done. It doesn't mean to request. It doesn't mean to, to inquire of the Lord. It doesn't mean to beg or to plead. It means to make a declaration of something that's already been accomplished. It means to declare what's yours because of the finished work of Jesus. Now, what good is the oil? Well, the oil to the Jews, and remember, this is written to the Jewish believers. The oil for the Jews was the sanctification process. It's how you separated something unto God. Is that necessary today? Not really. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and again in verse 6, it says our bodies and our spirits have both been purchased by the blood of Jesus and belong to God. So the separation unto God with the anointing of oil has been fulfilled as well. And there's no such instruction given to, to the Gentile churches. There's nothing anywhere that the Gentiles are required to anoint with oil. And the reason for that is anointing with oil was not part of their history. It wasn't a part of their background. The Jews would understand the significance of the anointing with oil. But the Gentiles would have no reason to understand that whatsoever. So what is it that heals the sick? The vow or the declaration that Jesus purchased it for us with his blood. In other words, the vow or declaration that healing is in the atoning work of Jesus that's been completed. Healing is a part of redemption. Healing is a part of redemption that's been accomplished. 
We've got another proof text for that also in Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We know with certainty by reading Deuteronomy chapter 28 that sickness is a part of the curse. And Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Now Deuteronomy 28 identifies what the curse of the law is. It's sin, it's poverty, and it's sickness. Well, what's the answer for sin? The shed blood of Jesus. What's the answer for poverty? The shed blood of Jesus. What's the answer for sickness and disease? The shed blood of Jesus. Healing is a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. Healing is a part of the atonement. It's a part of what Jesus did and accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, and it's available for anybody and everybody that will receive it without exception. If there is anything to hinder, it's given to us specifically, and that is to step back in the love of God. As we walk in the love of God, healing is assured. Are you sick today? Do you need healing in your body? The Bible gives you specific instructions on what works. If you need healing in your body, stand to your feet. There's no shame in needing healing, folks. All right, what are we going to do? I suggest we follow the, the Bible example. Does that suit you? Then say this after me. I declare in the name of Jesus, by the word of God, that Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes... I am healed. Thank you, Father, that because I'm walking in love, healing is mine. From this point forward, my confession will be that the Lord is raising me up and that I believe I received my healing. Amen. Amen. Now, folks, I want you to notice something. It doesn't talk about the, the strength of healing being because somebody laid hands on you any more than the anointing with oil, any more than the elders of the church. It says it's true because of what Jesus has done. And all we have to do is what we just did. All we have to do is acknowledge that and declare it. And if you refuse to say anything to the contrary, the devil's not big enough to see that you stay sick. He can't do it. He doesn't want you to know that, but he can't do it because of the finished work of Jesus. Amen? Well, let's all stand now. Let's lift our hands because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's worship our Heavenly Father. Lord, we love you. We bless your name. We acknowledge you as our Savior, as our healer. We thank you that you have blessed us and fulfilled all the Old Testament types and rituals. And this is now our year of Jubilee. Every year is our year of Jubilee. Because of the finished work of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for restoring us to our original possession. Righteousness, provision, and health. 
In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hallelujah. Folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus has done his part already. There's nothing else to be done. Not all healing is instant. It wasn't even in Jesus' ministry. But healing is assured when we continue to boldly say that Jesus brought us healing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. We love you.